Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. You're putting yourself out there and your work is judged by by many people. Whereas if you're working any other job, if you're working in tax or whatever, it's just your one-up boss and you can have a one-on-one conversation with them and you know, you're know you you're reviewed respectfully. Whereas I think, yeah, if you have a bad gig and a, and a crowd rejects you, it can feel so personal. And then you're like, well, if I can't make this crowd laugh and this is what I do, I identify as a comedian, then failing at that feels like a rejection of yourself. And welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the hilarious Nazim Hussain. Nazim is a comedian, actor and radio and TV personality who has performed stand-up shows at comedy festivals all around the world. Nazim created and starred in the SBS show Legally Brown, the sketch comedy series Orange is the New Brown on Channel 7 and his very own critically acclaimed Netflix special in 2019 called Nazim Hussain Public Frenemy. In this chat, we spoke with Nazim about the close bond he has with his little sister and his experience forming an unlikely friendship on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Here's Nazim. Nazim, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. We often say when we have a guest, it's a long time coming, but this one in particular (laughs) is a long time coming. (laughs) (laughs) You ghosted us. You ghosted us like three times. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I'm actually like so embarrassed because um, you guys sent me a message you slid into my DMs and then I was very excited and I replied like, oh, yeah, I'd love to be on. You were like, when? And then I just, uh, I just, I think I read it as well. It must have said read. And then, but I'm really bad. You know what it is? Like I'll read messages at weird times of the day or night and then in my brain I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do it then. I'll have the answer, my reply in my brain, but I won't actually does that, does that sound convincing? Absolutely. There's something wrong with my brain because I didn't mean to. <laughs> I'm going to say it's not that convincing when you take into the mm. account the fact that we first reached out to you in March 2019. Oh, this no. has been 18 months oh, coming. <laughs> I'm in the witness box right now. 
<laughs> I promise you this whole thing will be far more relaxed than this first question. <laughs> I've got sweaty palms. No, no, I, I uh, well, th- thank you for having me back on. So, or, or on, actually, full stop. <laughs> <laughs> we could have done two interviews by the time we first DM'd you, but we are very, very stoked. No, I just, I needed more life. I needed more life under my belt. I was like, you know what? What have I got to offer this podcast? Nothing, nothing new. <laughs> you lived for us. Nazim, we start every interview with the same question, which is, what were you like as a kid? Oh, okay. I thought it's, why did you ghost me? Um, <laughs> uh, what was it like as a kid? I, mean, I was so, I was just thinking about it. I was like so annoying, but like the teachers would try to discipline me. I was just like a cheeky kid. All my report cards said, Nazim does well in class, but he's easily distracted and distracts others. And I have recollections of teachers trying to tell me off going, Nazim, you're disturbing the class. And I'd agree with them and go, no, you know what? I am. I'm disturbing everybody. You're right. And then I'd stand up and smack myself in the butt or something or take myself out for time out. And everyone would just be laughing at me. And sometimes the teachers would. And so they'd want to make an example of me. But all that, all I was doing was just encouraging bad behavior. I was, I was just, I was a nuisance. Absolute. In fact, even like one of my earliest memories was sitting on the front step outside our house and my sisters and my mum were inside and I think maybe some house guests just watching me. And whenever a stranger would walk past, I'd just say, G'day, mate, how's it going? And they would just look at me and see this young, like three or four year old Sri Lankan looking kid just talking like a, I was just put on this weird ochre accent and I just engage in conversations with them about what they're wearing or how much money they've got in the bank and you know where they bought their shoes from. And it would just drag on until they actually had to try to exit the conversation. Awkwardly. So that was me. I've, I've been a troll ever since I can remember. Do you remember the sensation of making people laugh at that age? Like I did read an interview where you said that story where you said that you used to kind of like troll your neighbours or people walking past your house and that you did notice that people inside were laughing. Do you remember that sensation of making adults laugh in particular? I think like, yeah, I grew up with with a pretty strict Sri Lankan mum who I think it's in our background like sort of disciplining kids wasn't simply verbal. <laughs> I don't know why. I just, it d- doesn't feel like a bad thing that happened in my child, but we used to get smacked a lot. And I think to get out of it, if I would just make my mum laugh, like I would get out of the smack and she would, you know, so it was sort of like the sensation of like escaping violence. <laughs> <laughs> just taught me that humor's good. But also like, I think it's just, I don't know. I think maybe I just really liked being the center of that sort of positive attention. It was probably a deficiency in my personality, just needing that. But at school, I just I just really enjoyed it. I think it was just, I probably wasn't the cool kid. I wasn't the fastest kid, but I was definitely like a, a, someone that had no shame and would do anything for a laugh. So I think that's why I enjoyed being that guy. Nothing was off limits for me, I think. I just did anything. I love that so much. It sounds like you loved school. Were you good at school? Were you a studious kid? I think my sisters were much more studious than I was. I was like someone that, look, I think I've, you know, I've probably been, I was pretty, I was, I was pretty smart, you know, I did pretty well, but I didn't really do much homework. So in tests and stuff like that, I'd get the mat. I always top the class in maths. I just loved maths. English, you know, I think because I was kind of creative, you know, I'd come up with interesting stories and, you know, so the spelling might have been off, but I sort of got through school pretty well and I went to a, like a, a nerdy selective entry school in high school, but, but I never really did the homework on time and, the, you know, the prep required to do really, really well. So, yeah, I enjoyed school. I liked learning. Sort of had a pretty 
natural curiosity, but yeah, just didn't really have the work ethic. (laughs) (laughs) In an interview that you did with the Sydney Morning Herald, you spoke about your dad leaving your family to go back to Sri Lanka and that it was just your mum and your two sisters. And you said at the time, it wasn't easy for a young kid to live through a separation and divorce, but my sisters and my mum and I found strength in each other and became a team. Can you talk to that little team Mm. that you had together at home? You've done your research. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, just you wait. <laughs> yeah, like, I think growing up, you know, so, you know, we were, my mum was a single mum since I was about six or seven and uh, or maybe even younger than that, but it's kind of blurry the exact timeline. But I could always recognise other kids of single mums or single parents. Like there was a sort of a maturity in them. Like we sort of had to grow up real quick. We all just had to share the tasks a lot more. We would have to you know, my mum was working several jobs, but we would work several jobs with her. So we'd do leaflet delivery. We used to just, you know, we'd all get in the car and fold leaflets and then just, you know, we'd cheat the system. So, we'd, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd do like a couple of houses at the top of the street and then at the bottom of the street, chuck some on the street so that the guy that would inspect would see them and then we'd get paid. But I just remember we'd all have, like all of my friends at school, they'd be, you know, going on holidays and watching footy and having takeaway every other night. But we wouldn't do all that because we were pretty broke. We had a lot of poor person experiences so yeah I think we just we all sort of knew our roles pretty early on that we all have to sort of pull together otherwise we're not going to be able to my mom taught us about money pretty quickly like I don't have enough money so we need to work these jobs and money equals food and clothes and books and school fees so we sort of got that I don't know we just sort of understood that a lot quicker than I feel like many of my other friends at school did so yeah just like kind of through these uniquely intense and weird situations you just become really, really close as people do in these sort of traumatic experiences. So, yeah, it was, we, we, we still share that, you know, we're, we're way too comfortable with each other, me and my sisters and my mum. Like, <laughs> it's just like um, I see other families and the way they operate and I'm like, oh, okay, so people don't normally talk to their siblings like that. Like, <laughs> we are too comfortable. You were really young when your dad left. What was your understanding of him leaving around that time? Like did you know that he wasn't going to come back or he wasn't really going to play a crucial mm. role in your life really from the age of six onwards? What was confusing was why he left. You know, like, you know, we grew up with the knowledge that my dad had a problem with alcohol and what stemmed from that was aggressive behavior and impulsive behavior. He had bad company, you know, and, and, and as, as we all know, like problems with alcohol impact every part of your life, including financial management, your, your presence in the family. Anyway, he just up and left for reasons I'm still trying to understand. I remember not knowing why he left but knowing that he'd left for good because he'd gone to Sri Lanka. We actually, I think we, we chased him to the airport or something. We went to the, I just have a vague memory of going to the airport and not getting there in time or something. It was challenging, but, I th- but, I, but again, you just sort of, we just sort of all, that's when we sort of, I guess, developed this closeness as a, as a family, the rest of us, well, you know, me and my sisters and my mum, that we sort of have to just, well, pull up our socks and work hard. And, and you know, uh, and, and I guess humour was a big way of dealing with that. We'd, we'd laugh a lot. My mum would be really funny and we would joke about the situations we'd find ourselves in. And, and when, you're, when you're strapped for cash, you do all sorts of stuff. You, you hang out with people. Now, we were hanging out with people from the church and other single parents in the area and just, you know, your food vouchers, all that sort of stuff. So you kind of have to, you can go both ways. We were lucky that we kind of pulled through in a positive way, but you can see the way that going through that, those sorts of experiences can, can really 
traumatized in in a negative way. It does sound like the relationship between you and your sisters in particular is very strong and also seminal in who you are today. I've heard you speak about your sister Asmina, who you have described as your best mate. What's that brother-sister bond like? Oh, she's the best. She's like, so she's younger than me and about 10 times more mature. She's like a partner (laughs) at a massive law firm, Morris Blackridge. She's really good. You know, she wears a hijab and I think the first place that she worked, that she applied to work at was a law firm and 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 the principal lawyer said, oh, I don't think you can work here. I don't think I can hire you because the clients will feel that you are biased because you've, you're kind of expressing your religious identity. So then anyway, she did, you know, that's discriminatory by law. She then went on to work at Morris Blackburn, you know, has now become a partner and that same lawyer has sort of apologized. And, you know, I think even they even work together in some capacity, but she's like, she's just like so, someone that just has her head down, works hard, is true to her values. And it's probably like a quiet achiever compared to me. I will sell every little milestone. But with me, she's she's not a, she's not quiet. She tells me to my face when jokes aren't funny. She's like, "That's a shit joke. You're not going to say that on stage again, are you?" Or she'll pick me up when when I'm like, "That was horrible." And she's like, "No, no, that was actually pretty good. You had some bad moments, but you're just focusing on that." Or she's someone that gives me tough love. But you know, um, I think yeah, we have a very very close friendship and. I, yeah, I often feel like anyone that I end up with in a relationship will, will always find that challenging to understand how close we are because, you know, how can you, how can you compete with that sort of relationship? I don't think you can. No, I don't think you can either. As someone, I've got three siblings, Zara's got three siblings, and we are incredibly, incredibly close. And I think I relate as well to having your parents split and having a fractured family and becoming even closer with your siblings in the wake of that as well. You have said that Asmina is the funniest one in your family before, along with your mum. And yet you're the one who ended up being a comedian. Before that, though, you were a tax consultant, which has to be the, sorry for any tax consultants listening, the most boring boring job in the world. Yeah, yeah, it's so boring. How did you end up going from being a tax consultant to a comedian? Oh, well, probably because it's so boring. No, no, it was, uh, I, don't, I don't even know. Like it was, it was sort of like one of these, I don't even know how I, ended, I don't even know how the hell I'm doing comedy now. Like I know I'm doing it and, you know, I'm making, making enough money to keep doing it, I hope. But <laughs> it was never like an active decision. I never thought, there was never a vision board where I was like, I'm going to become a comedian. This is how I'm going to do it. I was sort of mucking around on the side, you know, doing community gigs. Like I, I did random prison things talking to people in prison, just anywhere. I just, you know, people were like, oh, Nazim could talk. So do this thing in the community. And so I was just doing it. And then someone in actual TV land saw me doing some stuff online because we did a show called Salam Cafe, which had some clips on YouTube as well. And then they were like, oh, I want to basically make your own television. Long story short, it was an accident. I sort of fell into comedy. (laughs) And so there was a point when I was working as a tax consultant that I had to say to the partners, hey, you know how I've been doing this comedy thing that I've sort of been hiding from you, but you've caught me out several times doing because I'd leave my jacket on my seat, but be on air at the same time on radio. I actually need to take six months off to do a television show. And they're like, oh, why don't you just leave for good? <laughs> so, um, so I just, so I ended up just sort of quitting. Yeah, I haven't turned back. I thought I'd do it until I run out of jokes. I thought that would last about six months to a year, but it's just sort of kept going. And I still have that fear that I'm probably going to run out of jokes in another six months. So we'll see. I might have to put the suit still there in my cupboard. <laughs> I mean, the tax is not going anywhere either. I, I'm the last person to advise anybody on tax, by the way. I have no idea. <laughs> don't say this now in case the jokes do run out and you need to find another job. <laughs> no, no, don't hire me. If anyone out there is a tax consulting firm, or just do not hire Nazim Hussain, despite what his resume may look like. He's probably lied on half of it. (laughs) (laughs) 
What is it about comedians and loving stand-up comedy so much? Like what is it about that craft that you enjoy? Because I think to anyone else who's not a comedian, it appears like the most stressful job in the world. Well, uh, I think it's kind of like podcasting. Like with podcasting, I think it's just, there's a similarity because, you know, with television or radio or any other kind of medium where comedy is performed, you're sort of intruding, you know, whereas if people are listening to your podcast, they've chosen to come and listen to you. And so with stand-up, they've chosen to come to your show and you, you know the, you just you you def, you make up the rules. You can kind of say what you like. You get an immediate reaction. Yeah, it's like it's the purest form of comedy. I think like if you're doing comedy on television, there are so many things that need to work. You know, it needs to be cast well, edited well, directed well. It needs to be on the right time slot. You have to make sure you're not breaching any rules. You know, everyone is like all sorts of people are watching. People like like comedy, people that don't. People that like comedy have to be a little bit smart, by the way. So when dumb people watch comedy, uh, like the sorts of comments and responses you get are the most hilarious, actually. They make for more comedy. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, it's just it's, uh, I think, yeah, like if you're an attention seeker, doing stand-up is amazing because you can see the people giving you attention. <laughs> <laughs> You've had like a lot of success with stand-up comedy. Actor recently. Oh, I mean, that's a subjective you. term. Actor recently shortlisted you as one of the best comedians of the last decade. I think it was. You were up there with the likes of Hannah Gadsby, like oh. all of the biggest names. So you've had lots of success. Have you ever had a show go completely wrong? I've got a top hundred list. Like things <laughs> go bad all the time. Like it's sort of one of the things with comedy. People only. Rem- well, you know, like you've just read that out and I'm like, oh, that sound- it sounds impressive. But I guess to-, to sustain a career in comedy, you have to just get up after every bad gig and bad gigs are so frequent. You know, like if you try new material, you know, m- more often than not, the jokes are going to fail. And I think all I've learned in my experience as a comedian is that if you just don't show them on your face that you are terrified and that you that you can't believe the joke went down like that, that they won't know. That's all I've learned. And then they kind of are a little bit more forgiving. But I remember one time I did a gig in Edinburgh. There's this gig called Late and Live. You know, I don't know if you know much about the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, but it's like the population of Edinburgh. Edinburgh is like a nice town. It's like, or nice city. There's like half a million people there. But during the Edinburgh Fringe, I think like an extra million people come in and out each week. So it's like, it takes over the town. And the locals, some of them, that don't like it historically have gone to this gig called late in life where they can just heckle the comedians, just yell shit at them. Sometimes they get booed off before they've even gotten to the mic stand. Um, (laughs) There's some story I heard of a comedian who was losing the crowd like 30 seconds in and they were yelling and throwing stuff. So he then got a glass bottle, like broke the glass and glass (gasps) himself in the head and then blood started coming down his face. And then the crowd, that's what turned the crowd and they got on side with him. Like they, it's just, it's just, uh, it's the worst. Anyway, someone booked me onto this gig. I think my manager booked me on this gig and, and uh, I just heard about Late Live. I didn't know what it was. I was like, oh, Late Live. This is back in 2010. I was like, oh, this is sick. Oh, you know, what a, what an honor. So I was backstage practicing my little, little stories and stuff about my mom or, you know, politics in Australia or something. And I could hear the crowd make a lot of noise from backstage. I was like, oh, this sounds like a red hot crowd. Anyway, so I went out. And started telling my jokes. As soon as I got like 30 seconds in, some woman, Scottish woman, she stands up and she just yells across the packed room. She goes, oh, just be funny, would ya? And then someone else stands up and he goes, oh, just tell us a fucking joke. Yeah, be funny. And I, was, I had no idea what the hell was going on. Like I've, I had done that opening joke 
for like the, for the last couple of years. And I, so I just yelled the punchline over them and then just got off stage. And, and I, 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 I was scared to go home because I thought the, the whole crowd wants to kill me. So I asked my friend if I could wear his jumper. And so I said, I, I can't because I just want them to recognize. Me. I thought if they saw me, they're all just going to come after me. So I'm still scarred. I, um, <laughs> I hate all Scottish people as a result. No, no I'm joking. <laughs> How do you seriously, though, bounce back from failure, especially when it is on such a public stage? Like, what is your relationship with failure? Oh, my God. Like, so, yeah, the first 100 times you, you know, you bomb on stage, it feels really, really bad. In fact, the first time, the first few times I got like, you know, bad reviews and, and look, that happens fairly more often than you think. It really makes you feel like, you know, comedy is so personal. You're, you're, you're talking about your, your own life, what you think is funny. You're telling stories, your perspective. And if someone says, oh, you're not funny or he's really bad, you take, you can take it really personally. And I remember just like reading and rereading and rereading this, this review once and it was published in a major publication. I can't remember which one it was. And then I just couldn't, uh, you know, I, I, it started to dictate the way that I'd perform. You know, I was thinking about that guy's opinion of me and I tried to do the opposite. And then I just didn't feel funny on stage doing that, but I thought maybe I'm doing the right thing. I'm not being what this guy is saying I'm being. It wasn't until I really, you know, you, you hang out with lots of comedians and they all talk about bad gigs and they all talk about bad reviews and how they all deal with it that you realize it's just sort of part and parcel of being a comedian. You know, like if you're going to do something publicly, people are going to dislike you. Comedy is subjective. So therefore, you know, it's, it's inherently niche. Comedy is niche, but then everyone has a different sense of humor. Like you put 10 people in a room, they're not all going to agree on one comedian being funny, ex- except if it's like Hamish and Andy. And like, you know, now there's, there's a lot of Australian comedians that everybody loves. So, so yeah, it's, you sort of just have to just grow a thicker skin, weirdly, and not completely ignore feedback because sometimes it can be helpful, especially if it's from people that you know and respect. But from the crowd, yeah, you've got to take it with a grain of salt. Coming up after the break, Nazim talks about fatherhood and why he loves being a dad. But first, a word from our sponsor. Earlier this year, we did an In Conversation episode with Celia Pacola, and she made a comment that the comedians in her life are some of the most anxious or depressed people she knows. Is that true for you? Do you think a lot of comics are so good at comedy because they can be so observational and they do probably think so deeply and internalise the world so deeply? I think comedians definitely like, and I think artists in general, I don't know, maybe they, they, they seem, there seems to be a lot of issues of anxiety and depression. And I don't know why that is. I think my, I mean, one thought is that you're putting yourself out there and your work is judged by, by many people. Whereas if you're working any other job, if you're working in tax or whatever, it's just your one-up boss and you can have a one-on-one conversation with them and you know, you're, you're, you're reviewed respectfully. Whereas I think, yeah, if you have a bad gig, and a, and a crowd rejects you, it can feel so personal. And then you're like, well, if I can't make this crowd laugh and this is what I do, I identify as a comedian, then failing at that feels like a rejection of yourself. And I think, mm. a lot, you know, I've spoken to a lot of comedians who have experienced challenges with mental health. And I think a strategy to deal with this is, is to sort of distance yourself from comedy being your sole and central and primary identity. Like you are more than a comedian. You're someone that does comedy, but if you aren't good at comedy one night, that doesn't mean you are bad as a person. I think also, yeah, it's just, it's it's never easy like dealing with negative attention. You know, it's really nice when you 
that's the other thing. Like you can, if, if a gig goes really well and you ride that high and you take that personally, well, then necessarily you're also going to ride the lows. So I've tried to never read or get sucked into good feedback, whether it's a review or, or someone telling me how funny I am. Like it's, it's really nice, but also I'm only a gig away from having a, having a really horrible gig or saying something accidentally, you know, making a mistake and um, then being cancelled or whatever. So you sort of have to try to distance yourself from your work. But I think, to be honest, I feel like I've had a bit of an advantage being being a Muslim because been a, a public Muslim for as long as I've been a comedian, probably a bit longer because I used to do some work with the Islamic Council, Victoria's a spokesperson there after, with and after Walid. And the sort of stuff you get being a Muslim, like the stuff that people say, it's insane. Like we used to, I used to receive death threats routinely. And if you can deal with that, you, you know, the stuff that you get from people criticizing your comedy is just doesn't really compare. I'm interested in what happens when you make jokes your job. Like does it ever take any of the joy out of comedy when you're, you know, your nine to five is making people laugh? Well, firstly, comedians work about 10 minutes a day. Uh, <laughs> 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 but um, but no, like I think what, like if you hang out with comedians, if, if you see a bunch of comedians hanging out, all they're doing is just being just just cracking each other up, making the wrongest jokes. Like I love nothing more than watching comedy and watching funny stuff and hanging out with people who are funny and just making each other laugh. Like that is the the most enjoyable thing for me. But yeah, like I think sometimes, yeah, it can be exhausting when you meet someone on the street and they're like, hey, funny guy. And then you have to then essentially kind of perform to them in conversation. That's exhausting sometimes. I mean, I do like it if you get a discount on your coffee and, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it's just like sometimes you, you, you're just tired, you're just working out, or you're just, you're just not in the mood and then someone's really excited to see you and you know that like if you're just like, oh, hey, man, I've got just got to go, that they're going to remember that. So, you know, you don't want to lose a future ticket sale. So you just got to <laughs> – what a bad thing in your day to have someone come up to you that you don't <laughs> want to talk to. Like, no, I think, yeah, if, you, if, if I ever stop finding things funny – and then I should probably just stop doing comedy. Good idea. We hate to put a basic bitch spin on this, but Uh-oh. we are two very basic bitches who love I'm a Celebrity Australia. Hey, oh, that's not basic. On, it, a little bit basic, but we loved you going on in 2017. You were one of our favourite contestants. You were on for 45 <laughs> days, which just sounds absolutely insane. Why did you decide to go on I'm a Celebrity Australia? Oh, I still ask myself that question. No, I don't, I don't, well, actually, they asked me on the first season, and then you know I didn't know what the hell the show was and I thought oh this is gonna be some wacky thing where I'm like oh I think they wanted me to come on as an intruder or something and I, I just thought I just saw the like the ads uh there's a there's a Muslim intruding the camp and I thought oh now stuff this this is gonna be some like tabloidy just a just a shit show but then I saw the first season bits of it I thought it was, everyone came out like coming across as they are no one was misrepresented and then the second season happened and that was good too. And then I remember I was speaking to Walid about, we were in New York together at the same time, like doing, he was working on the project, I was working on something else. I, I picked his brains about it for ages and he was like, look, you're inherently not a bad person. So, you know, like what's the worst that can happen? They're not going to like, you're not going to be revealed and outed as this absolute psychopath, like, you know, so just, just trust yourself. And I think it was just that conversation also just, Probably the money. <laughs> um, uh, but I remember as soon as I said yes, until I went in, I was like so stressed out. I was like, what the hell have I signed up for? But then as soon as I went in, 
I was complete, like I just was complete. I just embraced the uncertainty. You know, you have no idea what the hell's because you, you can't even prepare for it. Like, there's nothing you can do. It's not a comp- It's not a cooking competition. It's not like Dance with the Stars where you can work on your dance moves. You just gotta. I actually, actually, the first time I watched the show, this is so bad. It was I was in lockdown in South Africa before you go in for a week, and I thought, you know, I'm gonna watch some clips online. So I watched some YouTube clips, and I saw someone saw two clips, and they're really surprised. I was like, this is ridiculous. I saw two people fighting over like a sponge or something, and I was like, what kind of idiots? Why are they don't they know they're on TV? Why are they fighting over a sponge? And then I thought, I thought I'm never gonna do that. that. That makes no sense. And then I saw this other clip of I think maybe Joel Creasy and someone just bonding, like having a genuine moment. And I was like, like, don't they know that there's cameras? How could they drop their guard to the point where they're being vulnerable like that? That's just ridiculous. How could you do that? And then I went in and then a week into it, I just started doing the same thing. You just drop your guard. You can only, like, you just get exhausted putting on this act for the cameras. You actually just just find yourself being yourself and trusting that, well, what I am publicly is who I am privately now and people are going to hear me fart on TV and what can I do? Like, I'm not, a, I'm not a bad person. So whatever, whatever happens, happens. What was the hardest part about that show? Oh, it's just, I was just so hungry and you're pretty bored most of the time. Like they don't show the boredom, but like, that's pretty much the most of the day is just not doing anything. But I think that's what they, they do that intentionally. Well, I reckon it actually helps the show because the more bored you are, the more you end up just finding yourself. So I find yourselves in conversations about just personal stuff and, you know, you become desperate for food, so you'll do anything like I ate all sorts of gross shit. Not shit, but pretty much like it could have been shit would have tasted better than some <laughs> of the things I'm sure I ate. But, yeah, you just, you're just sort of driven to this point of insanity where you're just like, I have, there's nothing to do. Give us anything. To, we will do anything. That was the hardest part. Also just, yeah, missing family at home and friends, just not knowing also like how you're being presented. I remember like one crew member said at some point when we were on the way, like they used to blindfold us from the camp to the trials. It was like we were in Guantanamo. It was bizarre. But some, <laughs> some crew member, I overheard him saying, oh, you're in, he goes, oh, Nazim's in the Sydney Morning Herald and news.com today, you today, or like both the left and right wing media or whatever. And I was like, what the hell? Are I don't even know what the hell I've said. Have I said something crazy? And I started stressing out about it. I had no idea what the hell, you know, like you just, you forget what you've said. So they told you that they intentionally dropped that to you so that you could overthink it or did you overhear? Yeah, I think a crew member mentioned it to someone and I overheard it or Steve Price heard it and told me. I can't remember, but it was basically, I just got really got quite paranoid. My anxiety could never. My anxiety would spiral so much from that. <laughs> yeah, like I, I just, I, I, most people, I believe, well, half the camp was on like, they, they had to give them like, not like sleeping, but not like anything strong, but like mm. s- some sort of medication to help people sleep. I couldn't sleep till like 1am most nights. I believe, I think that was the time because I was just, you just, your mind's just racing. You're just going through the day. Like what the hell has happened? What did we talk about? <laughs> Like, am I going to come out and there's going to be like a lynch mob? I had no idea. I remember one time, just for fun, Steve Price and I would argue about politics and we were talking about the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and my position was that, you know, military intervention in these places isn't, I, I just, I, I'm just, I was just not a fan of that. And I said, I think that's what created ISIS, you know, creating this vacuum of power. We were just talking and he goes, I remember in the, in the, in the midst of this conversation, he said something like, oh, so you support ISIS, do you? And I said, no, I don't support ISIS. But he just kind of kept going with that. And I just thought maybe they've just taken a like a soundbite from me saying that I support ISIS or something, which I don't. 
I don't, by the way, just want to make that clear to, <laughs> to all your listeners. But it was like, I just feels like, oh no, am I, have, I, have I come out as a terrorist accidentally on this show or terrorist sympathizer? I had no idea what was being said about me. Well, it's so. not surprising, I guess, as well, given I think our country's history of treating people of color on screen, right? Like that oh, they love us. or that fear. <laughs> It's interesting that you bring up Steve Price, though, because we actually want to ask you about a quote that you gave to the Sydney Morning Herald because you Uh-oh. and Steve Price and uh-huh. for the listeners tuning in who might be from overseas or might not recognise that name, Steve Price is a right-leaning commentator, social commentator, political commentator. He's on the project a lot. And you two actually formed somewhat of an unlikely friendship while on the show together. And you said to the Sydney Morning Herald when you left the show, when you're a Muslim and a brown man in Australia in the current political environment, you're going to get viewed through those prisms. The most important thing I learned was that people who don't share the same ideological views as you but have the same aspirations are to be respected. Steve is the kind of person I wanted to hate, but once you end up meeting Steve, you end up liking him a lot. How have you gone living out that Mm. mantra, I guess, in the real world and not in the jungle, particularly in a year that has been as politically hypercharged as 2020? You know what? Like, it's tricky because Steve's opinions often really upset me. Like, it's hard for me to treat politics as anything but personal, especially when, you you know, politics is not abstract. It's not this academic thing where people just talk about ideas and they're just ideas that exist away from people like they impact people in lives and us you know i'm part of communities that are affected or targeted you know um as a result of policies that like bigoted governments kind of enact and so 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 meeting someone that has the opposite views to me or not opposite but you know very different views to me i just felt like he must be a selfish or bad person or someone that doesn't like me and it's like you know and but but actually he likes me and he and he loved the idea of a safe Australia, an Australia that was multicultural. Like we shared many values, but at the same time, he had views that were so different from mine. But I but I could see that he liked me. So he liked me, but he also had these horrible views, in my opinion. But we shared like it was. It's kind of interesting. It really just sort of, and still I'm kind of confused about my friendship with him because I'm like, you know, weeks after he came out, he, he had Pauline Hanson on his show. You know, I, I remember one time we were hanging out as a group and. Andrew Bolt sent him a text message, you know, um, people that I, that I like, you know, routinely get upset about. So, yeah, I think what I learned was that you can like a person and wish well for them despite not agreeing with their views, even if their views affect you personally. They, they all That feels like a contra- contradictory set of beliefs, but I think also I only have space for one right-wing person in my life and that's Steve, but I don't know. <laughs> It's a, okay. This is what it is. I felt this is the, the the spot I found myself in. I actually found it difficult to not like Steve as soon as I heard him talk about his family and like the way he loves his daughter. I don't know why that sounds so basic. Sound the basic bitch or whatever. You, but like, like, I was like, oh, of course he loves it. Like, it sounds so weird saying, how could you not consider that he loves his family? But like, when you see someone love and talk about their family, you can't but like them. You can't but be drawn to them. So, I really liked Steve personally but yeah our views are so different it's really interesting watching you even sort of go around in circles about it now in a really kind of realistic way because I think it's probably what a lot of people feel when they are around people who they do like Mm. but who do have kind of views that they really vehemently disagree with so and I guess it's just interesting to me three years on that you still sort of haven't properly got your head around it because I can't like I don't know like I don't know maybe this is a thing of mine maybe this is why I do comedy but I actually can't yeah like I've just sort of mentioned it like the pop when I see when I hear people talk about political stuff 
and they don't take it personal, they don't feel personally connected to it, it doesn't make sense in my brain. I don't understand that. Like I, I went on Q&A a long time ago and I remember sitting next to Malcolm Turnbull and someone else, and then Lindsay Tanner, he was from the Labor Party. And, you know, we were all discussing and arguing stuff. And then afterwards, like Lindsay Tanner and Malcolm Turnbull were just like buddies backstage, like just shaking hands, having a beer and stuff like that. And in my, I just, I was like, well, do you really believe what you say? Like if you believe what you say, then the guy opposite you is someone that is trying to fight for a country that goes against what you really believe is good for Australia. In fact, you think he's harmful, what he's saying. So I couldn't really square that circle, if you know what I mean. Like yeah. it was whatever, circle square, whatever the hell the phrase is. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, but I think that maybe that's my immaturity and, and I think maybe adults can do that and do that all the time, but I, I, I can't, yeah. Mm. An easier question for yeah. you. You are a single dad and it sounds like being a dad is so important to you and it sounds like having a dad that left when you were very young has informed the kind of father that you want to be. Can you speak to fatherhood and what you've learned in the last few years? Yeah, I think it's like, uh, it's interesting because like, you know, as I said, my dad had struggled with alcohol. I remember speaking to someone who was a psychologist and he said, now I was like, oh, I'm really paranoid about like, I don't drink, but I fear, I fear, obviously there's religious reasons, but also I fear that if I started drinking, I would become one because don't you just, isn't it just an intergenerational thing? And he said about 40% of people who are children of alcoholics will become alcoholics themselves. And, but he said, but interestingly, like 60% will definitely not become alcoholics because they don't want to be like their parents. And so he sort of extended that to say, well, you can become like your dad and abandon or, you know, kind of do what you learned from his behavior, or you can learn from his behavior and do the opposite. And so, you know, I know lots of really, really great dads who are so hands-on, so 2020, just such loving, amazing husbands and people and who are, who are like that because they're, maybe their parents weren't or their dads weren't there. So they their whole lives grew up thinking about the sort of dad that they would like to be. And so I, I think that's definitely me. Well, it's definitely me. Like I am a dad who is so tactical, very cuddly with my kid, tell him I love him all the time, very chatty with him. And I just want him to feel secure that his dad's always going to be there. So that's I learned that from my own dad though he didn't tell me I learned it from his absence how has fatherhood changed you oh it's like when people like even you just calling me a dad like it weirds me out like I have to keep reminding myself that I'm a dad like just the idea of it like oh yeah because you have this idea of what a dad is like maybe I am getting boring but it's uh yeah like now I I, remember the movie Lion have you seen the movie Lion like I watched it yeah years ago whenever that came out and oh I thought it was a great movie and I remember it being sad but I watched it again recently i had to actually stop it a third of the way in because i was like oh my god this is full on just seeing this kid get lost like it was just reminded me of my own son and you know i just couldn't watch it was just emotionally whenever i see kids in movies or tv shows or just someone tells me a story about a child getting lost at a super like i it, it, it's so full of, like emotionally i can't it's too intense so yeah i think uh without me knowing like i've been taking places emotionally and i didn't think i would be also like I'm quite competitive with other you know other people show me their kids and you know they try to tell me all the stuff that their kids doing I'm like mate <laughs> wait till you see mine no it's um <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm I'm on parenting forums and I you know I do all I, I don't contribute but I just I consume so much stuff that I never thought I would but also I was talking to my friend about this and he was like yeah you know there's no right way to parent because you know there's all these new you know there's so many different parenting theories now that are supposed to correct the ways of old but currently 
children experience like the highest levels of anxiety and childhood depression and all sorts of stuff. So no one really knows what the right way to parent is, I think. We're all just sort of figuring it out. And that's what I've started to figure out that no one really knows. You just sort of got to trust yourself and I'm enjoying it. I mean, it's so it's so odd, but I love hearing dads talk about how much they love fatherhood. I think so many women get asked about their kids and we probably don't ask men enough about the roles it plays in their lives because it sounds like the last few years have been probably the best of your life, if that's accurate. Oh, it's so fun. Yeah, I have all these ideas. You know, I just thought, oh, you know, a child is going to be a mix of what they've seen and, you know, the behaviors that they've learned from people around them. So I always thought, oh, I'll try and teach him good value. But they, they just have the, they're their own person. They become who the hell they are already. So you are just, yeah, it's just, it's really, really fun. We have so much fun together and everyone says it just gets better. And that's all I've seen. It just keeps getting better and better and better. I, I have conversations with dads at supermarkets for like half an hour sometimes. We just talk about parenting, you know, and I just never would have thought that. that yeah, <laughs> when did that. I become like this? Yeah, I know. It's so dorky. It's great. See, yeah, <laughs> so maybe you are a dad because yeah, it all is dad. dorky. Nazim, 2020 has been a bit of a mess for almost everyone, some more than others, but a general mess. What are you looking forward to in 2021? Oh, people. The first gig I did out of lockdown was to eight people. I was with Husey. We both did this this gig and we were so ecstatic. We were like, oh my God, there's real people in front of us and they're laughing and we could hear them, we could see them. So like just performing live again is the best thing ever. There's nothing like you can watch comedy online. Like there's some great, you know, watch some stuff on Netflix, you know. Go watch my half hour special. But uh, being in a room with people just laughing, there's nothing like it. It's just, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the best thing about being out. Just, I think, comedy rooms. Our final question for you. We ask everyone the same question at the end of our interviews, and that is, how do you define success? Oh, God. I think just your bank balance will tell you. No, no, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the ATO not calling you anymore. No, no. Um, if you have loving people around you, if you can, if you can look around you and go, oh, I've got, some great people around me who definitely love me and I love them too then I think I think you've I think you've won I think you I think you've, you're killing it Nazim thank you so much I'm so glad we finally got this interview off the ground it was oh. definitely <laughs> worth the wait but we are so grateful for your time and thanks for making us laugh thanks on so this much. afternoon we are very grateful please don't block me <laughs> <laughs> thank you Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Nazim Hussain. For more from Nazim, follow him on Instagram at Nazim Hussain. If you enjoyed this episode, we have chatted to plenty of comedians in 2020. Two of those comedians were Celia Pacola and Matt O'Kine, and you should absolutely chuck those episodes a listen also. We'll pop links to both of those episodes in our show notes. As for us, if this was your first time listening to Shameless, we are an independent pop culture podcast. We put out episodes every Every Monday and Thursday and we also have a monthly book club episode too if you'd like to keep up to date with us and learn a little more please visit our website shamelessthepodcast.com or go over to Instagram and follow us on there we're at shamelesspodcast thank you so much guys we'll be back in your ears on Monday bye Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through 
It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.